This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we'll check in with investigative reporter Lauren Rosenthal, whose podcast, In Deep, takes us to Lake Charles for an update on storm recovery. And rare photos give us a behind-the-scenes look at jazz icon Billie Holiday. But first... Election Day is finally here. With the fate of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives up for grabs, there's a lot to discuss before the polls close. We're joined now by Capital Access reporter Paul Braun. Thanks for being here. Anytime, Diane. Paul, control of the Senate and U.S. House of Representatives hangs on just a handful of races around the country. But none are here in Louisiana. What do we expect from the races at the top of Louisiana voters' ballots today? Well, not a lot of surprises. Republican Senator John Kennedy faces a long list of challengers for his re-election bid, but he is still considered a heavy favorite. He's hitched his wagon to the former President Donald Trump and aligned himself with Trump's political brand. In a state that voted overwhelmingly for Trump in 2020, that's likely to be a winning strategy. Uh, Kennedy has also out-fundraised challengers 10 to 1, uh, the $38.6 million he's raked in is more than 10 times the combined fundraising halls of Gary Chambers and Luke Mixon, the top Democratic challengers in this race. The big question is whether Chambers and Mixon will siphon off enough votes to force Kennedy into a runoff with one of those guys next month. Um, so that's what we're keeping an eye on tonight. Uh, same basic story on the House races we're looking at. The incumbents are heavy favorites in each of those, and there's virtually zero chance that control of any of the seats changes from one party to the other. That's by design. The way the state's congressional maps are drawn pretty much guarantees that Louisiana will send five Republicans and one Democrat to Washington to be in the House. Um, there is a fairly interesting intra-party challenge in the third congressional district uh, where Republican Holden Hoggett is trying to knock off incumbent Clay Higgins. Uh, Higgins drew some heavy criticism from folks in the Acadiana region for his handling of disaster aid after the devastating 2020 hurricane season and for his tendency to earn headlines with his fiery, sometimes violent rhetoric on social media. Um, still, Higgins has the support of the state GOP and has out-fundraised Hoggett so far. But that's one worth keeping an eye on. So not a lot of surprises are expected in the congressional races. What about down the ballot? Yeah, I mean, there is quite a bit down the ballot for voters to sink their teeth into, namely a couple of interesting special elections in the state Senate. In New Orleans, the 5th State Senate District, voters will choose the successor for the former senator and state Democratic Party chairwoman Karen Carter-Peterson. Peterson, you'll remember, resigned in April and pleaded guilty to federal wire fraud charges a few months after that. Um, the 5th District is the state's most liberal legislative district, and the race pits a couple of um, up-and-comers in the state Democratic Party, state representatives Mandy Landry and Royce DePlessis, against each other. Both are Democrats. Both have very similar voting records and policy positions. This is really more of a question of style, more so than substance. Uh, and then over in the 17th Senate District, um, which is anchored in West Baton Rouge Parish, there is actually a chance for Democrats to chip away at the Republican supermajority in the state Senate. State Representative Jeremy Lacombe, a moderate Democrat, is re- running to replace Senator Rick Ward, a moderate Republican who retired back in June. And he faces off against a, um, a West Baton Rouge Parish Councilman and Caleb Kleinpeter and a, a physician in Kirk Roussel. Both of those guys are Republicans. And as always, we've got a list of proposed constitutional amendments up for consideration. Run through those with us. 
Yeah, there are eight constitutional amendments on the ballot in this election. There will be another three in December when voters might head back to the polls for some runoffs. Um, This first batch of eight proposed amendments will ask voters to weigh in on provisions of the state constitution that, among other things, deal with certain tax breaks for veterans and people with disabilities. Some of them limit how the state invests its money in various trust funds. But I think the one that will draw the most attention is Amendment Number 7, which asks voters if they want to rewrite the portion of the state constitution that prohibits slavery and limits involuntary servitude to only be used really in the criminal justice system as punishment for a crime. Uh, This proposed amendment is a bit of a mess. In fact, the state representative who got this one put on the ballot in the first place, Democrat Edmund Jordan of Baton Rouge, he came out against it after Republican state lawmakers significantly amended his original proposal. And in its original state, the amendment would have prohibited the use of involuntary servitude and slavery in all cases, including as punishment for a crime that rankled some Republicans who thought it would sort of upend the um, criminal sentences right now that carry the designation at hard labor, which is a big part of the penal system in Louisiana. They amended it basically to say that slavery and involuntary servitude would be prohibited except in uh, the lawful administration of criminal justice, which is language that might be even more permissive than the current ban on slavery and involuntary servitude as the, the Constitution has already outlined. So it's, it's a bit confusing and uh, definitely one to keep an eye on. Paul Braun is the Capital Access Reporter for WRKF. Thanks for being here. Anytime. From the Water Main at American Public Media, Season 2 of the podcast In Deep takes listeners to Lake Charles, Louisiana, to learn how residents are recovering from two hurricanes, an ice storm, and empty promises from the government. The podcast talks to those forced to rebuild and relocate, as well as the volunteers who do anything possible to keep their community afloat. Investigative reporter for APM Reports and host of In Deep, Lauren Rosenthal, joins us for more on this project and what she uncovered in Lake Charles. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Lauren, in 2020 and 2021, Lake Charles experienced four major natural disasters. Walk us through what happened and the extent of the damage. Who was impacted by this? Well, the the storms really affected everyone living in and around the city and in Southwest Louisiana. It started with a category four hurricane, almost a category five in August of 2020. That was Hurricane Laura. And then about six weeks later, just as power was finally being restored in the city of Lake Charles, uh, Hurricane Delta swept the region, knocked out power again, flooded a lot of neighborhoods and already damaged homes. And then the winter brought a you know, freak ice storm, the same storm that you know, affected your listeners in New Orleans, that you know, sunk Texas into darkness, um, you know, record low temperatures for, for days. That also affected Lake Charles. And then finally, in the spring of 2021, while our producer and I were on the ground reporting in Lake Charles, there was a historic single-day rainfall and the city flooded. The first episode of the podcast focuses on relocating due to storm damage. You spend a lot of time with one woman, Alexis. Tell us a bit about her story and what she had to go through. 
Yeah. Um, Alexis was a, a woman in her 30s who grew up in Lake Charles, like a lot of people in the city, had been there for most of her life. Um, Alexis was living with her fiance in a small rental house. The hurricanes really did a number on that house and it was not livable anymore. Uh, Alexis and her fiance received a little bit of money from FEMA to try to find temporary housing in the area, but there really wasn't much available. These repeated disasters took a big bite out of the local housing stock and prices also went up. So Alexis and her fiance decided to take some of the money they received from FEMA, purchase a tent and camping equipment and set that up in a friend's backyard. Um, Alexis happened to learn she was pregnant that winter that she and her fiance moved into the tent. So when I met her, they were sort of bouncing between sleeping outside and sleeping in hotels when they could scrape together the money for that. And one of the central focuses of the podcast is empty promises from the government. They ensured help. They had helped during previous storms, but this time was different. What did the government do and not do, and what was the result of the neglect? Yeah, so, you know, initially, uh, you know, President Donald Trump, who, who was in office when the, when the hurricane swept Lake Charles, you know, he promised to send help quickly. He declared federal disasters, which freed up relief money from FEMA and made some temporary housing assistance available. But uh, FEMA has some pretty strict rules around eligibility. We found that it was very common for families to get denied when they applied for help, even though their homes weren't livable and they had no other option for a place to go. And as, as far as kind of more comprehensive help from the federal government, uh, it really does require aid uh, in order to rebuild and restore housing in a place like Lake Charles. And that's not help that FEMA can provide. It requires action by Congress. The president has to sign off. And even though Lake Charles was kind of told repeatedly that there was interest in providing that help to them, it took a record amount of time for that money to be made available. More than two years after the first storm, money still was not flowing into the community to actually put it back together again. We are speaking with Lauren Rosenthal, investigative reporter for APM Reports and host of the In Deep podcast. Lauren, it's not just the government that neglected to aid Lake Charles residents. Insurance companies seem to delay or even deny payments. Tell us a bit about your reporting on the insurance agencies. What did you find? Yeah, we found that, uh, you know, there's, there's a bit of a trend emerging in insurance. You know, folks expect they'll file a claim and they'll get quick payment. That's what their policy says, you know, is owed to them. That's the agreement. But instead, insurance companies also seemed reluctant to turn over payments to homeowners. People were facing long waits just to find out, you know, their claim was accepted, took an awfully long time to get payment. And then claims were being denied for really unclear reasons that you know, did not seem to hold up if you consider what was actually in the, in the insurance policy. Well, this is certainly not the most optimistic podcast, and for good reason. But you do find some incredible volunteers that give the community some hope. Tell us about the volunteer you introduced in the second episode. What is she doing for her city? 
Sure. Her name is Rochetta Sibley Ozan. She is a single parent to six children and a community organizer. Rochetta started paying out of pocket, pulling together donations, kind of doing whatever she could think of, as you said in your introduction, to kind of help people get by as they waited for help from the federal government. Um, she stepped up to the plate as that ice storm I mentioned was bearing down on Lake Charles, just felt she had to intervene as she you know, looked around the community and realized there were a lot of people living in unsafe conditions, in damaged houses, in cars, in tents. So um, as time wore on, you know, Rochetta continued to try to throw everything she could at kind of helping her neighbors through this really tough time. She started helping people kind of argue their cases with FEMA to see if the federal government could provide them some help. Rochetta was helping, you know, dozens up to hundreds of folks in her community, but she was doing it all while she lived in a FEMA trailer with her own family because her home had also been damaged by the storms. Uh, you know, to this day, Rochetta is a powerhouse and continues to provide direct assistance uh, to, to families in Lake Charles who were affected by the storms. Now, one of the main messages of this series is that all the disasters in Lake Charles, both the natural climate-related disasters and the industry-related ones, could be replicated in other cities across the country. Why is that? It's because the systems that people expect to tide them over and get them through when something like this happens are the same everywhere. You know, the government offers the same programs, insurance operates similarly. But I will say that, you know, I walked away from reporting this story with some real kind of optimism in my heart because, you know, the experts that we spoke with really stressed that in times of disaster, wherever you are, it's very common to see neighbors step up to help one another like Rochetta Sibley Ozean did for the people living in her community. It's just a question of whether the long-term support people need to rebuild their cities and come back home again is actually going to be there. And ultimately, where are things now? Federal aid to rebuild Lake Charles to kind of restore housing in the city finally started to flow in this fall. Uh, there are shovels going into the ground, construction projects getting started, you know, as we speak today. That is going to be a really long process, could take years. Population of Lake Charles has still not totally come back, and it could be quite some time before it does. Lauren Rosenthal, investigative reporter for APM Reports and host of the In Deep podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. God shall have them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God. Bless 
bless the child that's got his own. That's got his own. Here's a heads up for jazz lovers, photo enthusiasts, and fans of Lady Day. A collection of largely unseen photographs gives viewers a rare behind-the-scenes look at the jazz icon in the exhibit Billie Holiday at Sugar Hill, photographs by Jerry Danzig. It's on view now at the West Baton Rouge Museum. The exhibit is a collaboration developed by the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service and the Jerry Danzig Archives. Angelique Bergeron is the executive director of the West Baton Rouge Museum, and she joins us now. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you so much for having me. This must be a very exciting time for you at the West Baton Rouge Museum to have such an important exhibit. Tell us about Billie Holiday and her life. Well, Billie Holiday embodies so much to me. She's beauty, she's grace, she's class, she's strength, and she's wise. But she's troubled, too. Billie had troubles from a young girl. Um, Her mother had married many times. There were reports of abuse. And then later in her life, drug abuse and a series of failed marriages and unhelpful husbands. But her strength and perseverance are why she resonates so much with us today. Her music is taunting, it's complicated and comforting, it's all things, it's happy and sad, all at once. And this exhibit presents an unexpected journey into her life. How does it present an alternate narrative to her troubled story? There's her troubled story, and then there's the put-together, perfected image that she had on the stage. And this kind of shows you behind the scenes. It shows you Billy on the streets, greeting fans, hugging babies, signing autographs, just getting ready for her performances and just interacting with the public. It's a really intimate portrait of her. It's kind of a everyday lady day? Everyday lady day. I like it. Now, tell us about the photographer, Jerry Danzig. How did he come to photograph Lady Day? He had an assignment from Decca Records to photograph her week-long run of performances at the Newark, New Jersey nightclub, Sugar Hill. He photographed her in April of 57 there, and then at a festival in New York at the following August. How did he gain her trust to get such access to her to take these photos? Jerry Danzig's son, Grayson Danzig, is one of the curators for this exhibit, and he writes about his father's style as being very unobtrusive, kind of in the background. He always was careful to only use the natural light, so he didn't have light flashes in her eyes and things like that. He's able to capture this intimate portrait by his unassuming nature and ability to just get close to her. Now, these photographs were taken shortly before she died. Two years before she passed in 1959 at the age of 44. Take us on this journey, Angelique. When we enter the museum, what will we see? A larger-than-life portrait of Billy, beautifully dressed, hair perfect, her diamonds. And then you'll walk into the gallery. We've actually had to use two galleries to house all of the photographs, over 50 photographs that came. And we're a small regional history museum. Some of the photographs are over five feet tall that are just stunning, stunning crisp images, mostly black and white. There's a few colors in there, color photographs. Just a beautiful, intimate portrait of Billie Holiday on stage and behind the scenes. Do you have a few favorites? Oh, gosh, yes, I do. I love the images of her with her chihuahua, Peppy. Um, Just so cute and so tender. There's so many. I mean, Billie, I guess, 
I've loved her for so long. Just to see the beauty, the, the formal dress of the era, behind the scenes, the makeup, how she's just putting on these layers for the public, but also just so normal and everyday behind the scenes with her family, friends, and folks. There's some really lovely photographs of her at the kitchen sink of a family friend at their apartment on West 93rd Street in Manhattan. But I think my favorites are the ones where she's on the stage. Uh, there's a great one of her at the bar where she looks like she's about to cuss out Jerry Danzig or she maybe she's in the middle of an <laughs> argument with him or something, but there's a fire in her eyes and she just looks like she's given someone a piece of her mind. Wow. <laughs> now, does this club, the Sugar Hill Nightclub, does it still exist today? It does not. It, it has been closed for a few decades. Uh-huh. Do you also have some of the photographer's effects on view? We do. We have some of the ephemera from his assignment, photographing Billie Holiday's engagement at Sugar Hill. Some of the objects include his Leica M3 camera and a photograph of him while holding it, his business cards from the late 1950s, and other items from that period. I see you have an upcoming concert at the museum in celebration of this exhibit with some New Orleans-based musicians. What can What can visitors look forward to? Well, we have a monthly historical happy hour that we offer on our grounds. So in conjunction with the Billie Holiday at Sugar Hill exhibit, we've invited Mikala Iverson to come up. There will be a Billie Holiday and Lester Young tribute on November 18th featuring renowned New Orleans-based musicians Mikala Iverson, a.k.a. the Jazz Muffin, on vocals, Larry Seberth on piano, and Christian Winther on tenor sax. Ted Long on bass, and Jared French on drums. Makala is also going to be doing a lecture here on November 10th, talking about the early days of Lady Day, how she was given that nickname and her struggles from the beginning. Will viewers come away with a better understanding of Billie Holiday and her life story? I sure hope so. I sure hope it helps to make this icon a real person in their eyes. Angelique Bergeron. Executive Director of the West Baton Rouge Museum. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. The exhibit, Billie Holiday at Sugar Hill, photographs by Jerry Danzig, is on view through January 7th at the West Baton Rouge Museum, located at 845 North Jefferson Avenue in Port Allen. More info is online at westbatonrougemuseum.org. Good morning, hottie. You old gloomy say Good morning, honey Thought we said goodbye last night I turned and tossed Until it seemed you had gone But here you are with the dawn Wish I'd forget you But you're here to stay It seems I met you When my love went away Now every day I stop by Saying to you Good morning, honey What's new? From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. 
Thanks to our guest, Capital Access reporter Paul Braun, investigative reporter and In Deep podcast host Lauren Rosenthal, and Angelique Bergeron, executive director of the West Baton Rouge Museum. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and at 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.